This is the Education Gadfly Show. Very rarely, um, I used to watch, and this is going to show my age, I used to love to watch basketball when Michael Jordan played-ish. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You're at the Education Gadfly Show and online at edexcellence.net. And now, please join me welcoming my co-host, the LeBron James of education reform, the billion-dollar man, Brandon Wright. A billion dollars. A billion dollars. Lifetime endorsement deal. Wow, for LeBron James. That's a lot of of money. And on the eve of the first game of the, I believe, conference finals series. Wow. Wow. You know, and he's back in Cleveland. He is. We we work in Cleveland. We Maybe do. we should get to know LeBron James. Hello, get get a list of our fundraiser it's a funny on the money. Line I, here. He, Come on. He, he definitely cares about uh, schools. You know, I'm he, serious. He hey, Jalen Rose is a big school choice supporter. There you go. I think LeBron could go. be the next one. I have All to right. find out where he stands on these issues. <laughs> All right. Well, lots happening in the world of education. Got a few more weeks of school across the land. Uh, so let's do it. Let's play part in the Gadfly, Claire. On Friday, the Departments of Education and Justice sent school districts a dear colleague letter explaining how to handle transgender issues to avoid running afoul of Title IX. Did they overstep their bounds? All right. Now, this is a sensitive one. So let's start <laughs> off by saying a few things here. First of all, look, I have to say, I don't have a lot of stomach to get into this culture war that is breaking out over this issue. And I certainly have a lot of empathy for transgender teenagers who no doubt are face a lot of challenges, including bullying and everything else. So mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, you know, understand uh, the desire to do whatever we can to make sure that they, like all kids, feel safe at school and, and, and all of that. Uh, but the issue uh, <clears throat> to discuss here today, really, Brandon, is, is about the federal issue. Does mm-hmm. the Office of Civil Rights have the authority to do what they did or did they uh, overstep the, the bounds? And the conservative argument is they are interpreting Title IX of uh, of the Civil Rights Act to be, you know, to, to basically say that transgender students are protected by Title IX's prohibition on discrimination based on sex. Mm-hmm. And some people would say, well, it's not clear that back in 1972 when they passed that law that that sex meant transgender, they probably weren't even thinking about that back then. Mm-hmm. And so do you need an act of Congress or do you at least need the courts to come out and say whether or not that's a reasonable interpretation before uh, issuing these very, frankly, very prescriptive uh, guidance to the districts about how to deal with all kinds of issues on this. Sure. Um, now, you're a lawyer? Yes. Uh, no, I'm not a lawyer. But oh, I went I'm to sorry. law school. You went to law school. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, that, that, oh, come on, Brandon. So what? You're, you're not It's allowed. an important distinction. I cannot practice law. Okay. Anywhere. So and, and when people make lawyer jokes, you don't feel offended then? No. But, uh, I kind of do because I'm married to a lawyer. But, oh, but okay. yes. Yes. That, all right. Very, very well. So uh, the first question is whether, you know, do you think it's fair? You know, not, not really. We don't get into all the details about sure. whether OCR's interpretation was fair. But do you think that on the merits, the law usually says, you know, executive branch agencies do have this kind of discretion to interpret statutes. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's agencies' job to interpret statutes. Um, there's a few ways that they can do that. Uh, one is the way that they enforce it. Um, another one is the way that they pass regulations that help clarify and interpret the law. And I think here, I, I don't even think that this is a reinterpretation. Look, all right, we, we may have to agree to disagree on, on the legal question here. Yeah, when you read the guidance, it, you get into all kinds of very delicate issues. And the question is, as, as this is a new issue for many of us to think about, for many schools to think about, is it helpful to have this guidance from the federal government or is that going to further inflame the issue? I guess we'll find out in, in the weeks and months to come. A lot of people think that this was a political move on behalf of the administration. It's a classic wedge issue where Democrats are quite united on this issue and, and you know, get 
excited and motivated by it. Republicans are quite split on it. The, the business community in the Republican Party tends to you know, want to be uh, seen as, as open and tolerant as possible. Uh, so we'll see. We're going to see how this plays out in practice on the ground. We're going to see how it plays out in the politics as well. All right. Topic number two. Jay Matthews' latest piece argues that finding better ways to measure school success under ESSA is worth a try. But is that harder than it looks? Yeah, you know, Brandon, we, we've been digging into this issue like everybody else in town. We are mm-hmm. working on ESSA and, and on some analyses of, of how states are currently doing their accountability systems uh, and what they might be able to do under this new law. Everybody's excited, including Jay, about the possibility to move beyond test scores. But it turns out it's not easy because other indicators have to be valid and reliable and they have to be disaggregated by subgroup. And they also can't be something easy to game. And so, uh, you know, people say, oh, let's look at student engagement or teacher engagement. Well, those are Not based sure on means. surveys. Well, you base <laughs> yeah. that on surveys. Or let's okay. look at grit or let's look at non-cognitive skills. Again, most of that based on surveys. Uh, so, you know, are there some, is there low-hanging fruit out there where people can say, oh, let's, this is great. Here's all these other non-test score things we can use to measure school quality. I think the pushback on the test scores show how shows how hard it actually is to have an indicator work well, mm-hmm. right? It's hard enough to make math, a math test mm-hmm. work well. Right. So the idea of somehow creating some indicator that tracks grit yeah. or engagement yep. just yep. seems like such a tall order. Um, states could do this and I hope they experiment. I think it's kind of a cool part of the law um, and maybe some will surprise us and come mm-hmm. up with some Great thing, but it, it it just seems like a tall order. Well, look, I mean, in the early days of NCLB, the, some of the unintended consequences or potentially perverse uh, consequences were very obvious to many of us. And we talked about them and, and a lot of them played out, right? Uh, like, the, you know, they're, they're going to focus on the kids, the bubble kids right below proficiency. Well, that did happen in many places here, mm-hmm. too. I mean, look, if, if you're going to hook uh, accountability to these measures of grit or non-cognitive skills or student engagement, which right now are interesting and where they're still under development and they give us some new ways to look at, at school success. But, you know, when they're non-stakes, there's no stakes attached. You attach stakes to that, they're going to get corrupted. Sure. And so I think that's what we can expect to have happen. Uh, you know, states that don't want to go that route, they're going to look for easy stuff like attendance. Uh, maybe they can make that a little better by looking at a chronic absenteeism, at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think a lot of places are going to look at discipline and uh, that's something that makes me nervous that, mm-hmm. uh, that that's going to be a way to discourage schools from suspending kids that sometimes may need to be suspended and that some of those data can, can paint a picture that's not altogether accurate as well. But, you know, we're, we're all interested in finding better ways to measure school quality. Let's just be honest that uh, that it may be hard to improve upon test scores. And even if a state includes an indicator like this, I still think that achievement and especially growth should yep. still be the biggest pieces yep. of the pie. No, that's right. And, and likely is going to be. Okay, topic number three. Speaking of ESSA, this year's Wonkathon focused on sleeper provisions in the law that might lead to expanded parental choice. Which was the wisest wonk in your view? <laughs> First of all, I, I should be uh, careful next time not to use a term like sleeper provision in the question. <laughs> I mean, that, that kind of indicates that it's uh, boring or going to, you know, I mean, wonk, wonkiness is already can, can be viewed that way as it is. Mm-hmm. But we got 11 great submissions, uh, people talking about all kinds of things, Brandon, weighted student funding, charter schools. Uh, the provision for intervening in low-performing schools and what mm-hmm. you might do around mm-hmm. all of that. So, I don't know. What, what did you find most compelling? Um, it was a tough choice, but uh, the one that I went with is Claire Voorhees from mm-hmm. the Foundation for Excellence in Education. Right. 
Um, Choosy makes, States Choose Choice right. was her title. It was a great title, yeah. a great title. Um, and she essentially makes the argument for using uh, school improvement grants and direct student services to um, to incentivize school districts to improve schools in a way that expands parental choice, mm-hmm. right? Um, you incentivize schools to um, improve by setting bars. If they don't mm-hmm. meet that bar, you can close a school, you can convert the school, um, mm-hmm. and you can use direct student services, cash for things like transportation. Mm-hmm. Um, all this requires, right, a set of kind of high quality charter schools mm-hmm. in 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 the area. Um, but I think it's a really mm-hmm. cool idea that was not possible under NCLB. And, and I would say there were several folks that wrote about the importance around funding, weighted student funding, but but also just transparency that there's now uh, going to be a lot more information about what schools are actually spending uh, and and to make that much more uh, open and transparent to the public, mm-hmm. including the mm-hmm. teacher salaries, everything all in. We tried this a couple of years ago in the D.C. area to, to show people what the different schools were spending. It's hard to do, right? We'll see how people do it. But if you do it, what people are going to see is that there are vast uh, inequities and that mm-hmm. there are places that are spending much, much more money on affluent kids and poor kids. And, and that's going to lead, uh, hopefully, I am saying... Uh, even though I may be right of center, I would still <laughs> like to see some school finance overhauls to try to make our system more equitable. And that mm-hmm. is going to benefit school choice because there are still places like Ohio, many other states around the country where charter schools, mostly serving poor kids, get 70, 80 cents on the dollar compared to Way less money. Right. Yep, yep. And and that is a huge barrier. If you want to run great charter schools, you cannot do it at a discount. You got to be able to pay your teachers a competitive wage. Uh, you've got to be able to have the resources to serve your students. And if we can you know, overhaul our school finance system and, and the choice and charter schools are a part of that. That's going to go a long way. Absolutely. Wonk it up, baby. Wonk it up. <laughs> All right. That's all the time we've got for Pardon the Gadfly. Now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. Amber. Hey, Brandon. Uh, do you watch um, basketball? Very rarely. Um, I used to watch, and this is going to show my age, I used to love to watch basketball when Michael Jordan played ish, but that was a long time no, ago. No, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I would just player. watch it because he was just so awesome, and I don't know. What do you have for us? Uh, this week, I've got a new study out in Policy Studies Journal. It examines factors that put a voucher school at risk of failing. Um, so it was a neat little study. One of our EAPs did it, uh, Michael Ford, um, which is our program where we bring in these up-and-coming scholars. And he used 25 years of data on the Milwaukee voucher program to examine the extent to which factors like the newness of the school, the affiliation of the school, market share, and regulatory environment put a school at risk of failing. Um, so every private school that participated in the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program which is MPCP, between 1991 and 2015 uh, are included in the study. And they find that 247 participated for at least one year during those years. And of those, 130 are no longer participating. Pretty big number. Of which 102 are classified as a failed school, meaning they either merged, um, I mean, sorry, the remainder either merged or uh, converted to a charter school. So in other words, all 130 didn't fail, just 102 failed. Um, And that's about 41% 
Okay. And so they were wow. terminated via some regulatory action or they voluntarily shut down. Um, and then the analysis includes information on both the likelihood of leaving the program um, and of failing. So there's a couple different ways to, to um, analyze the data. Bottom line, startup voucher schools and those not affiliated with a religious institution have a comparatively high risk of failure over time. Um, I think the startup one is not so surprising, right? Mm-hmm. So specifically being a startup increases the risk of failure by 332% wow. and increases the risk of leaving uh, the program for any reason by about 218%. So those are pretty big numbers. Um, the average time, this is just a, a descriptive stat, the average time to reach failure for a failed startup is four, a little over four years mm-hmm. compared to almost nine years for an existing school. Um, and on average, startup uh, schools enroll about 90% of their students via vouchers. So they're almost completely, you know, I don't know if they're opening because of the program. Um, but anyway, there are a lot of kids mm-hmm. that are on vouchers. Mm-hmm. Um, and this was neat. Um, having a religious affiliation reduced the risk of failure. So um, just for instance, if you were a Lutheran, if you were uh, affiliated with a Lutheran uh, denomination, the risk of failure uh, reduced by about 67% if you didn't have that wow. affiliation. Um, and then this is another unsurprising thing, but market share also mattered. So schools that um, had increased their numbers over the years had less a risk of failing. Uh, and they also found that some regulations, specifically a cap on enrollment, increased the likelihood that a school would leave but not fail. So they speculate that some schools chose to convert convert to charter school status as opposed to having their enrollment capped. Mm-hmm. So that's why they didn't fail. They just left. Sure. But I mean, I think all in all, the biggest takeaway for me was that this statement on startups, you know, when you have eight, 82 of the 102 failed schools were startups, that's that's huge. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this was just really interesting that, you know, they found that without the the support that a religious organization brings, it's just much harder for them to make it. Sure. And they talk about, you know, these these affiliations give them institutional support, but also just they use the word social capital that flows from an archdiocese or a religious order. So people, you know, these are religions that they know, that they are familiar with, even if they're not of that religion. There's It carries a certain cachet, mm-hmm. um, apparently, to be affiliated with a, uh, a religious institution. So, I mean, I think in the end, and we've done some studies of school closure in Ohio, and we found some benefits uh, to school closure. And I think what I was left with was that, you know, opening school is inherently risky, I'm actually on a charter school board now that's a new charter school, and I'm seeing this firsthand. Um, But also closing them is risky, too. But at the end of the day, it's kind of like, you know, do we think this is worth a risk? You know, is it a risk worth taking? Mm -hmm. And I think most people would say, especially in a place where the traditional schools are lackluster, shall we say, uh, it probably is a risk worth taking. Sure. Um, How often were the startup schools standalone schools? Uh, I don't think I saw those data. Yeah, I'm not, right, I don't yeah. know if they were affiliated with a CMO or not. I didn't. I didn't see that. Yeah, yeah. because uh, right. Um, I feel like that could be sort of stand-in for the religious. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 No, it's a really good point, right. and I I don't know if they collected that or not. But um, yeah, I mean those numbers are pretty startling. I can tell you just from Huge. my own experience, it's just it's recruiting teachers, right? High mm-hmm. quality teachers in the door. It's making sure that, you know, if it's a new principal that she knows what the heck she's doing because maybe she, you know, has come from a traditional setting, which is completely different than yep. a charter school setting in many ways. Um, it's the it's in D.C. It's not so much funding, but everywhere else in the country. Right. Sure. It's about the funding. Yeah. Um, and I just could go on and on about and many people can about what the challenges are that are unique to a startup. 
And it seems like there's just a mentality that, you know, you're going to be a statistic. You're going to close in three to five years if you're a startup, you know, because of X, Y, and Z. Mm -hmm. And and it's really daunting. Yeah. Right. I mean, we were just talking about this recently at a board meeting, like, you just got to fight like double hockey sticks sometimes to keep that school open um, because it yeah. just seems like everything is just against you, especially if, like you say, you're you're not affiliated with a, with a CMO. You're a mom and pop. Right. It definitely shows how hard it is to start and run a school. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you just kudos uh, to those to who do it well that, right? that do yeah. it. Yeah. And, yeah. and, you know, and, and when you're on just kind of on like me, just trying to support a school in that way. Um, and many times you just feel helpless, even, even though I work in a think tank, you know, and I study education policy, mm-hmm. it's still, and we learned this in Ohio, right? We have real schools that we uh, serve as authorizers um, to it, see it up close um, in many ways. It's just, it's just great respect for the work that occurs um, and just, you know, just helplessness sometimes yep. that, that you can't do more even when you know all this stuff. It doesn't seem to translate on the yeah. ground. Yeah. So. Anyway, not, not to leave on a depressing note, but <laughs> uh, it's a really neat study. And uh, and Michael Ford, if you're listening, uh, great. Thanks for sending us it along. I feel like sometimes these things just happen to appear in our inbox. Mm-hmm, and uh, and mm-hmm. he actually sent it along, which I appreciated. Pretty great stuff. Thanks. Thanks, Amber. Mm-hmm. Okay, that is all the time we've got for this week. Until next week. I'm Brandon Wright. And I'm Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. The Education Gadfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at edexcellence.net.